the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world, and we look at it through the prism of our Catholic social teachings, our Catholic social values. And there's a lot going on in the world, as always, and there's a lot for us to be uh, looking at. Uh, One of the things we're going to speak about today is we're going to speak about elections and mayors. Uh, We are in New York City, although we are national. And at least this year, there is a lot of elections going on this week for the city. A lot of uh, citywide offices, but individual Uh, representatives from different neighborhoods. So there's a lot going on. And so in a few minutes, we're going to be speaking with Michael Hendricks from the Manhattan Institute about that. Well, we're going to talk, you know, quite frankly, a little bit about what's going on in New York City and uh, those elections. We're not going to be limited to that because I think one of the things we want to look at is, um, you know, how do we look at what is going on in the various parts of of the country and how do what goes on there impact what is going on hey tom um mm-hmm. did you um did you register or did you vote are you did you vote in the primaries or not i did miss senior i i uh you know i was i'm i'm registered so i was able to vote i voted for the first time in my my ranked choice voting so uh i i was very i was very excited to participate in that so uh so yeah, it was it was interesting. It was interesting. Did you vote on primary day itself, or did you vote early? No, I voted. I voted on the day. I'm still old school in the sense, you know. I like I like that whole thing. I like to go in. I like the uh, you know. I like the the, the hubbub about it. Crowded actually, or not, crowded or not crowded? Uh, I went in the middle of the day, so I went about two o'clock. Not too crowded, but it was interesting. Um, one of the candidates of uh, people nationally may be aware in for New York here is Andrew Yang and his wife was actually outside of the uh, polling place I was in. So uh, I got a chance to to meet her. She was lovely. She wrote on chalk on the ground to vote for Yang. So uh, so it was really, uh, you know, so it was kind of like me. There was a little celebrity sighting in, in my in my voting, too. <laughs> okay. Well, that is that is good. So, I mean, there's been a little bit there's been a, like a fair amount of conversation about ranked choice voting and how that makes things uh, more confusing for the voters, etc. Now, Tom, admittedly, you are more aware of this than many people because of uh, what you do in so many different places. Um, Did you have any problems with the ranked choice voting? No, I, I didn't, Monsieur. I, you know, and that's why I was, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to go in the middle of the day. Usually I vote at night, but I went in the middle of the day because I was afraid exactly, as you said, I was a little bit afraid with ranked choice. I thought, oh my goodness, is it going to be, is there going to be lines? Is there going to be confusion? But I found it really very simple, you know? I mean, they had all the candidates' names on, you know, on kind of a, a chart. And then next to the chart, you know, there was uh, five columns or six columns, I think five. And then uh, and then you would just go down and they had next to each one, you know, where you put your choice. So it was like your first, your second, your third. So it was a little like doing the SAT. You just had to be sure you weren't filling in. Uh, you weren't filling in more than one dot in the same column. But other than that, I, I, know, I didn't I didn't have I any know, problem. I don't know if you saw, Tom, uh, for the past couple of weeks, they've had an article 
in the Wall Street Journal comparing um, ranked choice voting and explaining it using bagels. Did you see no, that? Oh, okay. I didn't see that. No, I didn't. They, they said, so you go to the bagel shop and you got lots of choices. You want, you want locks on your bagels. You want cream cheese. You want butter. You want it toasted. You want cinnamon raisin. You want a uh, thing. And they said, okay, so your first choice is cinnamon raisin, mm-hmm. but they don't have it. <laughs> okay. So then you, then you do the everything bagel. That's your second choice. Ah, they ran out of those. And then you do the plain bagel with locks. <laughs> I said, that's, you know, that's, you get your first choice. You got your second choice. You got the third choice. I, you know, from my point of view, mm-hmm. I think they made too much about how confusing it was. Now it gets a little bit more complex in how you tally it, but I don't think it's complete, uh, confusing from the point of view of the, of the voter. You just, mm-hmm. you know, if you only want to vote for one, you vote for one. Right. You want, want to vote for or f- for five, you vote for five. You want to vote for three? I mean, it's like, um, you know, and another other areas, I mean, it certainly gives people a lot of choices and a lot of a lot of options. So um, anyway, so, all right. Well, I'm glad you glad you voted. You know, as <laughs> I, I say, for a variety of reasons, um, I have not I am not registered in any particular party, depending on the election. I look at the candidates, the issues, what positions they take. And, you know, sometimes I might vote for a Republican. Sometimes I might vote for a Democrat. Sometimes I might vote for a third party candidate, mm-hmm. you know, depending on on what's going on. So I didn't get to vote in this primary, which I was a little disappointed because I wanted to. Yeah, I would have liked to do the ranked choice uh, voting in 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 some way. So anyway, but however, with that. Let us go to our first guest, who is kind enough to join us again on Just Love, Michael Hendricks, the Director of State and Local Policy for the Manhattan Institute. Michael, thank you so much for being with us again on Just Love. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. So, um, so what do you think? So let's go. You heard us talking. Um, Do you like ranked choice voting or you don't like it? What's your up or down? (laughs) <laughs> well, look, regardless of my opinion on it, I think it's interesting to point out that ranked choice voting, whether it's complicated or not, a new system or not, of the 398 instances since 2004 that we've used a ranked choice system, 383 of those times, so 393, 390, 398 times, 383 of those times, the first choice, the one who comes out ahead in a basic no, who's your number one pick? Basic voting system still comes out ahead in a ranked choice system. So right now, Eric Adams is winning in New York City. He's ahead by roughly 10 points right now. Right. There's still more votes to be counted. We still have to go through the ranked choice system. We won't actually probably even know the full ranked choice results until July, which is incredible. Right. But regardless, you know, regardless of how I feel, whether it's confusing or not, the thing is 90 90- percent of the time ranked choice is a nothing burger it doesn't really fundamentally change the dynamics of the race what it does do is it says we're going to have an election system for better or worse that kind of aligns with how we view the rest of our life right now like we don't just have one movie that we can watch on one channel we have netflix we have amazon prime we can rank our different choices we have endless choice 
And now we get another set of choices in who we want for mayor. So, Michael, that is a very interesting statistic that I don't know, I can't do the math, but it's probably about 98, 98, 98, 99% of the time the person who finishes first before the ranking winds up winning afterwards. Okay. So, so I accept that. However, I think there's another question that, that I hope you know the answer to because in most elections and you know this better than I, isn't it true that, that most places insist on a runoff if the top candidate doesn't get, a certain percentage, sometimes I think it's 40, but other times I think it's actually 50. They insist on a runoff. Isn't that true in many cases? In many cases, that's right. So ranked choice is viewed as a quote unquote instant runoff system. Now, of course, instant, I feel like has to come with massive air quotes because New York's Board of Election is only going to do that runoff, not instantly, not last night. It's going to do that runoff again in July. But you're right. Rather than scheduling a whole other probably expensive runoff, which, by the way, has more often than not less turnout than an already low turnout primary. Instead, you just have to go to the polls once. And that's probably for the best. So but but, Michael, let me ask this question. Um, Oftentimes you will have in a three person race, let's just say say that you'll have the two leading candidates um, not getting sufficient votes. Do you know the number in which the person who came in second actually ran the runoff, won the runoff? So in the ranked choice system, so again, going back. No, no, in the previous system, in 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 the system where if you didn't get enough, one and two ran against each other. Do you know how often in the runoff two beat one? I actually don't know. That is a great question. And, and I will tell you from an analytical point of view, Michael, I think that is the relatively critical question that's got to be put alongside the fact that in ranked choice, the number one almost always wins. If without it, there's a differential in the outcome, that's significant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. So it, it's interesting. There have been, of yeah. the nearly 400 instances of ranked choice since 2004, yeah. there have been 15 come from behind winners, right. but only three of them overcame deficits larger than what Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia right. have right now relative right. to Eric Adams. Right. Okay. All right. So anyway, so let's move off that a little bit. So um, what are you looking for in the new administration, whoever that might be, in New York City? I think we're looking for what the voters right now are saying they're looking for. They want uh, the next mayor of New York City to place public safety and crime at the top of their to-do list. And we see that among registered voters. We see it among all New York adults. And we also saw that in polling likely Democratic primary voters. Public safety and crime is number one. And this is actually, I think, the most important thing, one of the most important explanations for why Eric Adams seems to be the presumptive winner 
of the race for mayor. You know, in a seven to one Democratic city, of course, the primary for the Democratic Party is the most important contest for mayor. So Eric Adams is, as the public safety candidate, I think really reflects that concern. Now, look, that's not the only one for us or for voters. You know, the economy is number two. Uh, right now, New York City has the highest unemployment rate of any city in New York and has had this, one of the slowest rates of recovery and employment of any major city in America. So, so the economy is incredibly important. We have to get back to growth. We have to stop taking growth for granted, as I think we have for years, you know, even pre-pandemic. New York City, a place of fantastic opportunity, amazing amenities and great people, was shrinking. People were saying, eh, I don't, I don't want to move there. Um, and then saying, if I do live here, I want to leave. That's not a good sign. That's not a recipe for success. And I'd say the third issue for us and for voters is housing. You know, in the decade before, in, in, the, pre, in the previous decade, uh, for every one new job that New York City added, the New York City only added 0.3 housing units. And that big gap between uh, demand and supply, inevitably, this is Econ 101, inevitably led to rising house prices and people competing each other out of places that they'd want to live in. So you get things like worries about displacement and gentrification. And this affects now not just poor New Yorkers, it affects pretty much everybody who doesn't have an investment banking job or a trust fund. And that's a big problem if you want to be able to not just like have basic opportunity or get back to that kind of blue collar New York that we know from the past. It's also bad if you just want a city that's dynamic and a place where you can like, I don't know, raise a family and have kids. And it's just difficult. So I'd say crime, economy, housing, huge, huge issues. So let's go back to your kind of pointing, um, your kind of little bit of analysis that Eric Adams did did well because he got known for pushing public safety, et cetera, et cetera. In the era that we're in, and not necessarily New York City alone, but we can use New York City, but we can also talk about the country. Is um, how do you how do you view a voter's kind of decision making on issues versus identity? And so let me tell you tell you this. I mean, I, I have no problem saying I was appalled by a little bit of a clip that I saw of campaign of Andrew Yang with John Liu, who was campaigning, I believe it was someplace in Queens, but don't hold me to you. John Liu gets up there and says the equivalent, I might paraphrase, hey, guys, Andrew Yang is Asian. You're Asian, vote for him. Not exactly the words, but it's not far off. How much of our politics has become identity politics independent of issues? So much of it has. And I think the reason why identity is trumping ideology is because of the nationalization of politics. And so as everything becomes nationalized, we look to not just party ID, um, which is, by the way, separate from ideology. We look to party ID and we look to the identity of that individual as a way to help us make sense of politics that we don't entirely understand. Or we look for a way to make sense of a confusing world. Um, and it's also part of a philosophical change where identity is, is becoming the most important factor of someone's life. At least that's what we're told. And so identity really becomes incredibly important. It's also an increasingly visual age that we live in. And so... 
you know, we're separate from the world just simply of books. Once you have books plus radio plus now television and social media, then it all becomes about the medium becomes the message and the message is identity. Um, I would say one final point, everything, this is my sense, everything is downstream of the culture war today. And I don't just mean social issues. Social issues is one part of a broader culture war. So everything becomes lumped into that. And by the way, back to your original point on identity, look at the results from this recent mayoral election. So the results that we have so far find Eric Adams winning the black vote. We find Andrew Yang winning the Asian vote. Now, Maya Wiley is interesting. She won among Brooklyn and Queens hipsters and Manhattan elites. Now, that's less identity, although many of the hardcore progressives in New York are part of a relatively white, wealthy, and educated cohort. Uh, but nevertheless, you see the battle lines of the culture war reflected even New York's mayoral results. Do you know where, where the, uh, the New York, his, have the New York uh, Hispanic vote fall? Eric Adams. Okay. Eric Adams, in fact, won or seems to be winning so far. All of the outer boroughs, he's only losing Manhattan. Okay, that's uh, that is that is interesting. So, so let's take the three areas that you talked about as needing, um, you know, safety, safety slash crime, economy, housing. Um, let's take the safety crime uh, crime issue. It certainly seems to me that. And let me phrase this a little bit of a provocative way. It, it certainly doesn't seem to me that if you want to win a lot of popularity contests, you want to become a police officer these days. It, it seems if you arrest somebody too roughly, you get accused of arresting them too roughly. If you stand by and don't arrest them, then you get accused for not doing it. And I know I'm phrasing that. I mean, I do understand community policing. I do understand um, you can perform your job without being brutal. I understand all that. But given that the issue of crime and safety has become divisive, how would you recommend the new administration deal with that tension? Yeah, well, to, to your point, while no one wants to be unfairly punished or harmed or pulled over by the police, especially if there's a history of that in your community, as right. many members of the black community, not just in New York, but across the country, feel and have indeed experienced. Also, at the same time, it's undoubtedly true that the police generally, but especially in New York, feel under fire. Uh, and they feel that if they catch the wrong end of a viral video, whether it, the viral video is depicting truth or not, that they're going to be um, convicted and sentenced in the court of public opinion. Uh, and there's no recourse. They're in, there's likely to be no justice. And it's how they feel. And right now, that's a challenge because there's spiking violent crime across New York City, and it's harming especially black and brown communities. And so we may, you know, some progressive corners may want the police to pull back in order to, pr to protect black lives. At the same time, black lives are directly being harmed from crime that now police may be hindered from responding to. And the community response simply by social workers alone, which is one of the fundamental arguments of defunding the police, removing the police, putting social workers in instead, this is still very untried. 
And it's very unclear, and I, I think I'm being very generous, I think it's very unclear that that will actually stop violent crime in the act. You still need police. Police are, and this has been shown across every study imaginable, police are one of the best uh, responses you can have to crime and to curtail crime. More police does actually help. So, so here's the thing. When we say, what do we need to do? We not only came up with policy ideas, we also polled them to see if registered voters supported these ideas. Because you're right. The sense is, you talk, if you talk to anybody and say, I want more police, you may worry that you're going to get some viral tweet about you not trying to cancel you. The, here's the reality, though. When we said, look, we need to recruit more police officers with NYPD, and they need to be especially educated NYPD officers, which are shown to less likely to be using violent uh, violent responses when they're unnecessary. Um, that garnered some 76% support and was passionate support among registered voters. And it was the top ranked policy that we put out there. And we also asked New Yorkers, do you want more police in your neighborhood? Four in 10 of those who said that they wanted to defund the police said they wanted more police in their own neighborhood. Uh, and but, they, but Michael, you've, you've been around this world uh, long enough that you're not you're not as old and decrepit as me, but you probably have read about our good friend, uh, the venerable deceased senator from Chicago, Everett Dirksen, who reminded us that consistency was the haven of the feeble mind. He they <laughs> accused him of saying something that was contradictory to what he said because they said, ah, ah, consistency. That's for the feeble-minded. So, so uh, you know, those, those... We have a lot of strong-minded people in New York, potentially. <laughs> but look, I, I think it is completely fair for someone to say generally, I could be in favor of defunding the police yeah. or generally in favor of socialism, but for thee and not for me. Yeah. I mean, there's a long history of that, right? I mean, the whole notion of nimbyism, not in my backyard, is all about I'll build yeah. somewhere else, but not in my backyard, right? It's fundamental yeah. yeah. human nature. But you know, I still it, point out that people do want to feel safe, and they feel the police could have a positive role in that. You generally support community policing, so walking the beat, not staying in a police car, chomping on donuts, waiting for a quote-unquote big crime to happen. You know, this is stuff that People actually do want, and it is not only bipartisan, but it also cuts across racial and ethnic divides. We're speaking with Michael Hendricks, who is the director of state and local policy for the Manhattan Institute. And we're speaking about, you know, some of the issues that are on the agenda, not merely in New York. We're speaking about New York, but there are urban issues throughout uh, throughout the, the country. You know, Michael, one of the things that I think when we try to develop good policies. And, you know, from our Catholic perspective, we think fair, just, compassionate public policies and programs are critically important for the, for the, for the common good. It seems to me that given where we are in terms of social media campaigns, all those type of things, jargon and phrases have become the way to do it. I mean, I have to say, and every now and then a phrase is, is, is pretty good. I, I'm, I'll share with you and our listeners my own uh, perspective. You know, I think the phrase, you know, Black Lives Matter is not a bad phrase. I think, you know, Black Lives Matter. 
doesn't say other lives don't. I know that it can be used that way. And I think given our history, even going back constitutionally to the beginning where we didn't say constitutionally that all lives counted equal. <laughs> Some lives only counted as three fifths. So I, so I don't think that's a bad phrase. I mean, it can be blown out of proportion, et cetera. But I have to tell you the phrase that I think is, is, is pretty unfortunate and bad is defund the police. I mean, that just is, is great. If you want to say cut the fat out of a bloated police budget, I'll raise my hand for that, as I will cut the fat out of a bloated uh, Board of Education budget. I'm in for that. But what does defund? You take $100 away or you take all of it away. So the phrasing seems to be getting in our way today, Michael, of good policy. What, what do you think? I know. I, I feel too often we trade away good ideas for great slogans. And the slogans are no substitute for good policy. And, yeah. you know, back to back to the point I made about how the medium informs the message. Right. I think we were rightly during the era of the, of the rise of cable news and television news that we were trading substantive ideas for 30 second sound bites. And now that seems like a great alternative to 280 characters. And in a world of 280 or 140 character tweets, really pithy slogans really sell. And it's not just that. It's not just the medium informing the message. It's that the message can sometimes shift what we believe to be reality. So somebody is going to say defund the police because they believe that it will shift with you know the Overton window. It'll shift the window of what's acceptable, maybe not entirely to literal defunding of the police, but by having such a radical slogan that gets into people's minds and is repeated ad infinitum, that maybe it will get part of the way there, and then you won. Right. And once you've gotten them three quarters of the way, the rest of the quarter is easy. And so that's the power of slogans. And they're not wrong necessarily to say that those slogans can be powerful today. All right. So let's shift the topic. What do we do about housing in New York? There is no problem with housing that can't be solved through an abundance of housing. And right now we have an outright scarcity. And in a scarcity world, we either say, well, let's have more housing. Or he just said, we'll forever have the scarcity. And then the job of government is to ration scarce housing. And when you get to ration scarce housing, then really you begin to slowly hand over the reins of housing production to the government. And it all comes down to the government. And this is how we get to the situation in New York where subsidized housing is not just for those who are poor or very poor. Subsidized housing is now for the middle class. And the middle class can't even afford housing. Right now, the challenge is the vast majority of, or nearly the majority of homes that you or I would consider to be the core to the identity of New York, the buildings that we think are beautiful and lovely that we would want to preserve, are in fact illegal to build today. In Manhattan alone, 44% of buildings that exist today are illegal to build today. And so, that's I, a huge crisis. I could just stop for a moment. Um, I mean, it can be illegal because it's two inches near the curb or something like that. What Death do you mean? by a thousand cuts. But, take, but, but tease that out when you say 44% of the buildings are illegal, would be illegal to build today. What do you mean by that? Generally, that's through zoning. So zoning just says, what can you build where 
how much of it. And since 1961, we've had a ratchet, particularly since 1961, we've had a ratchet generally in favor of more and more restrictive housing. Um, I think under Mayor Bloomberg, that was one of the last instances in which we had some kind of considered uh, what's known as upzoning. So just lifting the regulatory ceiling over building. Um, but that upzoning also came with that upzoning in the really dense parts of New York also came with a dramatic downzoning in other parts of New York. And so really like this harms everything. If you are somebody who cares about capital A affordable housing, this is subsidized again by the government more or less, um, then you should want upzonings or changes in zoning because that's when affordable affordability measures are triggered in New York City. Um, the less we have that, the fewer affordable units that we get. Um, what ends up happening is we just do those kind of upzonings only in poor neighborhoods, um, whereas wealthy neighborhoods get to basically build a wall around themselves and a gate and say, like in Soho, nobody else can come in here. We locked the doors around 1970. And that's, that's a challenge for a city like New York that's always been about growth and dynamism and opportunity. When you start building walls and throwing up gates, locking it up and throwing away the key, then that New York fundamentally changes. So we need to we need to legalize more housing in New York City. That means changing some of the zoning. We need to get rid of some of the just unnecessary red tape, exactly like you said. Are you two feet a little bit too much this way? Does the roof angle have the right angle to it? All those little death by a thousand cuts really difficult. Third thing is there's inflexible use categories. So you just say there can only be this certain type of business that can operate here this very particular type of unit for housing that can be built here, make it simple, make it flexible. And you know, most of the candidates for New York, even on the Democratic side, supported those kind of measures. Michael Hendricks, the Director of State and Local Policy for the Manhattan Institute. Uh, thank you for being with us, sharing your insights. I know you'll come back because we have a lot of things to talk about as we are in the upcoming months and years. So Michael, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Great. Tom, I think we will take a break. Uh, this is just love. Just do it. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. And we look at what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We just did a little bit of, and pardon me, listeners, if you thought we were a little bit too New York City focused, but hopefully in talking about how some of those issues impact New York City, I'm sure they impact places throughout the country also. And we do talk about public policy issues because, you know, we have our values, our Catholic teaching, and somehow they have to get impacted and put into practice in life. And so that's why we vote for people. That's why we advocate for certain public policies, because um, that's the way those values um, uh, get uh, get impacted um, in in life. So uh, so anyway. So but so we focus a little bit on New York City. Now we're going to go worldwide. And I was very very privileged um, uh, on World International World Day of Immigrants and Refugees, which actually Tom Dobbins put together a prayer service. I was uh, real pleased to meet our next guest. Bukhari Wedraogo, who is um, who is from Burkina Faso and um, is now working for us in Catholic Charities New York. But he has a very, very interesting story about how he moved from Africa to the United States. Uh, Bukhari, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome, uh, Monsieur uh, Sullivan. I am very happy to be here, and uh, uh, thank you. So I, I know, so for our listeners, we've talked about some of this a little bit. I know that you were, you applied for asylum in the United States, I think around the year uh, 2005, 2006. Can you tell our listeners what does asylum mean? I know, I mean, I know we, you know, people understand immigrants, they understand refugees. What is asylum? Can you maybe say that so I get a little bit smarter in our listeners? All right. Thank you, Monsignor. Uh, asylum is a, <clears throat> a way to come forward uh, when uh, you find yourself. Um, uh, in a country such as the United States, and um, I actually left my country following um, a lot of uh, family and uh, social uh, political issues. So uh, when I got here, I, I spoke to a lawyer, and uh, um, they uh, explained me that uh, my case uh, would fit uh, into uh, asylum seeking. So asylum would be uh, asking. Um, your host country to legally admit you to stay uh, 
legally and be able uh, to work legally and uh, make a living. That's asylum. Okay. So um, maybe we're getting into this a little bit in a roundabout way, but I think it is very interesting. And I know you've spoken about this a little bit. So you mentioned uh, social and political issues. What were some of those issues that were impacting you and your family in Burkina Faso? Um, I mean, um, you know, Burkina Faso is a French colony and um, uh, democracy is not, uh, wasn't uh, very stable uh, in my country. Uh, so was a lot of uh, political issues, um, social unrest, and uh, <clears throat> when I got out of uh, uh, the university, uh, I tried to um, start a non-profit organization uh, on my own. Um, and, uh, you know, we ran into a lot of issues. And at some point, um, I wasn't feeling um, uh, like uh, uh, pursuing uh, 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 my activities, uh, my uh, um, uh, what I uh, was doing, so I got the opportunity to 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 to, to come to the United States, and uh, <clears throat> that's how I got here. And luckily, I applied for asylum, and I went through the entire immigration process uh, with uh, under a legal counseling, and uh, it worked out, and uh, we naturalized uh, as American. Okay. Well, we um, so let's move forward a little bit. Your current job is with Catholic Charities in the Refugee Resettlement um, Department. And what you work on is economic empowerment. So speak to our listeners about what that means, economic empowerment, and what do you do? Thank you. Uh, Economic empowerment means uh, helping uh, uh, refugee resettlement department clients uh, to uh, uh, with uh, uh, traditional support to help them uh, resettle in in, in the United States. And uh, particularly in our section, the workforce, the job development section, uh, in a daily basis, uh, we get in contact with uh, our clients uh, trying to help them uh, to create resumes for them, prepare them for jobs, uh, doing mock interviews, uh, how to um, interview uh, with uh, a recruiter uh, successfully. And then uh, we refer them to jobs and uh, those who get the jobs, we kind of follow up with them to make sure uh, they uh, job retention, they stay on the job. Uh, and then uh, start making uh, the money they need to become financially independent. So economic empowerment means uh, helping refugees who got to uh, the United States and uh, to, to, to get uh, the employment, the jobs, the, uh, their dream jobs, in order to make uh, enough money to take care of themselves and their families and uh, become uh, socially uh, active and part of uh, the community and the environment in which they live. Uh, Bokari, um, you, you know, New York is a place 
in which people come from uh, many different countries. In the program that you've been working in, how many different countries have you helped refugees from? Uh, Monsignor, it's uh, so diverse. Uh, our client population is so diverse. They come from uh, all over. They come from across the world. Uh, I will start with uh, Latin uh, America. Uh, a lot of clients come from uh, Venezuela, from uh, uh, Honduras, uh, even from South America, Brazil, and uh, Argentina. Uh, we have clients also who come from uh, Africa, uh, mostly uh, West Africa and uh, Central and Eastern Africa. And uh, because uh, we work with, uh, uh, I mean, it, they, they all fit under the umbrella of immigrant, but particularly they have to be either refugees or asylees or other type of um, uh, uh, this uh, uh, category to be accepted and enrolled into the refugee resettlement at uh, Catholic Charities Community Services. So um, <clears throat> we have also clients that come from Caribbean, Haiti, uh, you know, those areas are very affected and uh, also Cuba, so, um, and even and Europe, even Europe, thank you. Even Europe, you, even yeah. some, some from Europe? Yeah, from, from Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine, uh, Romania, uh, uh, yes, we have refugees uh, coming from there, and the Middle East as well, uh, Syria, and then uh, uh, Palestine, even uh, Israel sometimes. Yeah. How about, how about, uh... Asia, East Asia. Yes, East Asia, definitely. Yeah, I was about to forget that. Uh, we have a lot of clients coming from uh, uh, Pakistan. Uh, also, um, I don't know if Turkey is part of Asia or Europe. However, we have uh, a lot of Turkish uh, people. And also you have uh, uh, Myanmar, um, you name it, uh, Asian. A lot of uh, clients come from Asia as well. So I, I, I know this is very serious business, but I have to ask you, you know, do you have any penguins from Antarctica? <laughs> it could be as eclectic as that, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, but, yes, it's a really broad, it's a really yeah, broad population. Yes. Um, so give our listeners, we're speaking with, um, with Bakari uh, Waraogo, who is working in economic empowerment with refugees and asylees, as we just heard from almost every continent of yep. the world that is coming to, to New York. Um, Bakari, give our listeners just a little sense. What are some of the specific jobs that you have been able to place some of the refugees and asylees in in the past few years? All right. Yes, thank you. Um, job placement occurs like... Uh, regularly on a daily, weekly, monthly basis at the Refugee Resettlement Catholic Charities Community Services. And um, uh, it depends on the client profile. Uh, client that come with a resume, who have a professional background from their country of origin, uh, we will help them to shape uh, their resumes and apply for uh, 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 more intellectual jobs. It could be teaching, it could be 
working in law firms as clerks. It could be being assistant in uh, some of the offices. So uh, to uh, pinpoint and particularly answer your question, um, recently we have placed uh, a lot of clients coming from um, uh, uh, Latino uh, countries, the Latin countries uh, in the uh, cleaning uh, uh, field, uh, cleaning um, services uh, downtown in Brooklyn, uh, Queens, and also uh, a lot of clients, uh, they are interested in uh, becoming a whole home health aid, HHA. So they have to go under a training, like uh, a two, three month training. So we have placed a lot of clients who take care of senior people, the people with disabilities, they get training and they become professional and they do those jobs. We also have security, uh, the security industry also uh, uh, absorbs a lot of our clients and also restaurants uh, and also uh, driving deliveries, uh, working in warehouses with Amazon and uh, other big uh, companies. So it's very broad, like uh, the way New York City runs uh, um, 24 hours, we have clients who work, uh, who get jobs uh, in uh, different industries in the city. Bukaru Wedraogo, Thank you so much. Thank you for working with us at Catholic Charities. And thank you for what you do to help refugees and asylees to be able to support themselves, to live in a greater independence uh, because they are empowered to work and to earn a living for themselves and their families. So thank you so much for joining us on Just Love today. Thank you, Monsignor. I am very happy to have been a client for Catholic Charities as an asylee and now working as an economic empowerment supervisor at the Catholic Charities Refugee Resettlement Department with a wonderful team. Thank you. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. We will take a break. And when we come back, we'll a little bit about what's going on in the world from Tom. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. You know, Tom, today we kind of went from focusing on New York City politics and social um, reopening and some of the policy issues associated to that. Then we spoke uh, with Bakari about his journey from uh, Africa to the United States. Let's go out of space now, Tom. <laughs> so, hey, I hear this next news note. Your mom gets credit for bringing this to our attention. So tell us, tell us about this really neat petition that's going around. Sounds good, Monsieur. Yeah, no, and and Mom does get credit for this. She she shared this with me on the on on the phone one day last week. Um, you know, Monsieur, more than sixty thousand people have signed a petition to stop Jeff Bezos from returning to Earth after his Blue Origin spaceflight next month in July. Days after the Amazon founder announced earlier this month that he and his brother Mark would fly to his Space Torbs company's first passenger flight to space. Two petitions were launched calling to prevent Bezos from returning to Earth. One of the petitions, in fact, has garnered more than 40,000 signatures. And it said that billionaires should not exist on Earth or in space, but should they decide the latter, they should stay there. The creator of the change.org petition wrote. And well, another, uh, You know, it's interesting. I, think <laughs> I, like, I like that p- position. Um, I'm, you know, I, it, it, it's a... Uh, kind of a different version of nimbyism where basically what they're saying is, well, we don't want billionaires in our neighborhood and our neighborhood <laughs> is the earth. Well, I, I'm not sure I agree. I don't agree with the petition, but I kind of think it's a fun thing to, to, to do. I mean, because sadly, I know from Catholic charities, oftentimes uh, we get petitions signed if we're going to put a particular program in a neighborhood and the people in the neighborhood are about worried about the impact on either their property values, their safety, you know, um, you know, I understand it. It's oftentimes not justified. So I, I'm not, I mean, I kind of find it a little amusing that some other people, uh, they want to keep billionaires out of their neighborhood. <laughs> you know, to each his own. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, uh, it, is, it is whatever. So, um, uh, Tom, what's going on in the, uh, in the world of, of refugees? And I think, uh, since we're talking about that, that uh, the White House is going to end um, migrant family expulsion. What's that about? Yes, Monsieur, I would say um, the, the White House is um, reportedly considering ending as early as July 31st, the use of Title 42 for migrant families. Title 42 is a Trump-era public health order that lets the U.S. border officials quickly back uh, to uh, send migrants back to Mexico. President Biden has been briefed on a plan for stopping family expulsion under Family 42, uh, as well as the option of letting the court end the policies. The administration has been in negotiation with the ACLU over this past week to temporarily hold on the lawsuit targeting the practice to expel families. 
Details of internal discussion at the White House show top administration officials have suggested that President Biden's seat on the, on the initiative order, arguing that allowing the ACLU to sue would force the Justice Department to defend the Trump policy. White House officials had said that this is ultimately a public health decision and would be made on those grounds, and they would not get ahead of the CDC on this issue. So is this the, um, this was um, public health, which basically said because of COVID and things like that, we weren't going to admit families into the, into the country? Yeah, that's Title 42. Yes, that was right. And it, it, was, it was basically a measure for COVID. And I guess now, you know, the question is whether the White House will end it or the ACLU, the ACLU is taking the, the administration to court to kind of end this policy as well. Okay. All right. I, one of the things which, and I, again, Tom, which I think it's worth our listeners um, kind of understanding there, you because we have a really, really strong, you know, Catholic value that we think countries should be generous in admitting immigrants and refugees. We don't believe in open borders. We do believe a country does have a right to borders, but we think there should be generous policies to permit people to come in and to cross borders. And it should be generous in a way that, you know, forces legal immigration because we're not fans of illegal immigration. But in order to make that work, you need a fair and a generous immigration policy so people can enter the country legally. And some of the things we are seeing now is it's not easy to administer a policy, even if your intentions are good, your policies move in a good direction, which respects human dignity, respects um, the country that is receiving. But this is very complex because people immigrate for a variety of reasons, different circumstances. And so in order to set up a system that treats everybody fairly, I know you can't do it overnight. And if you're trying to make up for things that were going in the wrong direction, it's going to take you a while to put them back on track. So I understand some of the current tensions, because again, to be very, without being partisan, but to speak from a policy perspective, some of the policies and protocols that were put in in the past four or five years were just very, very problematic in the way that they treated immigrants. So now to kind of rectify that, it's going to take a little bit of time to do that. Tom, thank you for getting our our guest today. We talked very locally about what's going on in the future of New York City and its policies. We talked about refugees, uh, asylees from from Africa with Bakaro. And so as we kind of come to the beginning of our summer vacation and all, you know, we keep in mind that our big world uh, needs all of God's blessings and all of God's protection. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.